the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians at Ephesus. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not lay, let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. God rid of, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ as in Christ, God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The word of God for the world. I love this church because I love the people in it. And I love that we can go from a classical hymn from centuries ago, or at least the tune, to an African-American spiritual, to a taze meditative chant. And I love how that reflects each of you. From the energy of my husband to the meditative, more still-running waters of some of you, we're all welcome and part of the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. I love what Paul is doing in the work of the church at Ephesus. He had, he had quite a battle. And today I want to use a term that you've heard before which comes this word, beloved community. Many of you have heard that word. It actually was first coined in the early days of the 20th century, uh, which I didn't know, this philosopher-theologian Josiah Royce, who founded the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And he was the first to coin that term, the beloved community. But it was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who, of course, took that term and fleshed it out in a way that many of us have heard about in powerful ways, capturing sort of the imagination of what it would be like to live together in nonviolent ways. And the thing about it is Dr. King outlines his beloved community 
in different works of his and speeches as well, he didn't talk about it as some sort of idyllic utopia. He said, you know, this is not for the by and by, for the peaceable kingdom, when the lion and the lamb lie down together. He said, we can have the beloved community now. We can have, as he says, a a critical mass of people committed to and trained in the philosophy and methods and values that hold this beloved community. So I want to share what those are. Just if you go to the King Center website, you'll find this. It says, Dr. King's beloved community is a global vision in which all people can share in the wealth of the earth. In the beloved community, poverty, hunger, and homelessness will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. Racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of brotherhood and sisterhood. In the beloved community, international disputes will be resolved by peaceful conflict resolution and reconciliation of adversaries instead of military power. Love and trust will triumph over fear and hatred. Peace with justice will prevail over war and military conflict. And I let, he, he goes on, of course, in explaining this vision, but what's so interesting about it is he never once says there won't be conflict. Where you have humans living together, you will have conflict. Amen? And so he says, instead, we recognize the conflict that will exist as inevitable part of the human experience. But what was so powerful is he said, conflict can be resolved in a different way. It doesn't have to involve violence. In fact, and I'll end with this, he says, all conflicts in the beloved community should end with reconciliation of adversaries, cooperating together in a spirit of friendship and goodwill. Friends... Guess what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians? He is creating and describing the beloved community. And it's a powerful, you know, we have examples, modern day examples. So it's kind of neat to sort of juxtapose the two. But that's exactly when we look at, we sort of dust off the book of Ephesus and think, man, how is this relevant at all? And it's extremely relevant for us. And I want us to, to see how he's defining the church at Ephesus and for us as the beloved community. Uh, Michelle kicked this off last week, and we talked about this, that this whole book of Ephesians is connected intentionally with the first three chapters laying out the theology, the worship of God, what God has done in Christ for us, which we can celebrate and praise. And as a result, as Michael said, we get to do the last three chapters We get to do the ethics, the discipleship, the behavior out of this great outpouring of gratitude and love. This is, in a nutshell, what Ephesians is doing. But as chapter 4 takes that turn to talking about what we as as a group, as a community, do together, our life together, it says it's held by these common values. This is the beginning of chapter 4. Again, what Michelle marked out last week. 
And those values, if you're looking, are in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 4. That it will be held together by humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's it. That's the beloved community. The hallmarks and way of reaching a beloved community. Now, I think it's extremely important, and I do need to reiterate that very point, that chapters 4, 5, and 6 are not a to-do list. Because that's where we love to sort of get activated, right? At Free For All, some of us talked about, man, our church was all about the to-do list. In fact, they made Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 sort of an individual checkoff list. I'm not thieving. I'm not putting on falsehood. I'm not lying to one another. I'm not embittered. I'm not sinning in anger. You know, it was sort of a checklist. Licentiousness, greed. I mean, it just kind of goes on and on. And we will get there. (laughs) But what's so beautiful about this is the first three chapters have to uphold the rest. We have to go back there and say, this is not about if you do these things, then you are a good girl or a good boy. Or you are a good church or a bad church. You have fewer people that lie, (laughs) fewer people that steal, fewer people that put on falsehood. No, when we go back to chapters 1 through 3, it says, you are only good because of one thing. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I love it. If you look back, Ephesians 1, this is what he's done. He's adopted us as children. Out of this grace, we have redemption through his blood. This is verse 7. Forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace that he lavished on us. And he's going to give us all wisdom and insight to this mystery. And then in following, we become the inheritance of God. So there's this beautiful unfolding that we get this grace and these riches of wisdom and inheritance. That's our gifts. That's our goodness. That has nothing to do with what we did to earn it. And so it's out of that full place of gratitude and love that we get to, that we want to serve one another, lay down our life for one another, forgive one another, bear each other's burdens, and choose nonviolence with one another. So that's hugely important because if we don't get this, the next three weeks are going to feel like a great moral lesson. And guess what? You know, we have so much more to to embody, embody, than behavior modification as a church. The church has done that. I don't know that we've done so well at it. And people are tired of it. What we need is the infusing of that fullness, the grace that what Paul's talking about. From death, we are now in life. From, from sin, we now have, we have grace. 
This is what inspires us to love one another. And so from that place, let's move. This week at Free For All, my hands had a workout. Okay, I take notes on the laptop as people talk, and I mean, they were moving the whole time. Lots of energy about this. In fact, as a result, you see in your worship guide, it says part one. It's because at some point toward the end, I was like, we've got to have multiple weeks for this. This is, this is good stuff and a lot of good energy around it. And I want to share, as we were getting started, the first comment off the bat was from Josh, and he gave me permission to share And he said, when I read this text, he said the most important sort of hermeneutic, which is the word, the lens in which we look at it, is that we recognize that we're interconnected. If we're a body of various members, we're interconnected. And he said this, if we understand our interconnectedness, it keeps us from our divisiveness. That what we do to others, we're actually doing to ourselves. That's a profound statement if we really believe that we are a body of unity. That we are members of one another in this. What we do to others, we do to ourselves. So if we inflict harm on another, we inflict harm on ourselves. As Glinda said, I think it was, if you hammer your thumb, the whole body feels it. Right? And then Josh moved us further, in which we told him to stop meddling. He says this. I've still been thinking. Actually, I, he had, he, I asked him to email me because there was more thoughts, and so he, he emailed this to me. I've still been thinking about this idea of interconnectivity. And I've thought about that in relation to our friends on 7th Avenue. I see them as an extension of our church family. By thinking about that extension, I personally feel that I have to deconstruct my own Christian privilege to be authentic. Living in this connectedness to 7th Avenue forces me to grapple with that my authentic relationship with God is not a connection to a God of luxury or status. On the contrary, embracing realness, which Paul gets at here in a minute, brings me to the realization that I have a relationship with the God of the street corner. That realness contradicts the luxury of the Christian privilege of the South. My relationship doesn't bring power. It brings love. I think in creating the beloved community, we have to take in the ethos behind Josh's message there. That we are interconnected. And we don't get to choose who we're connected to. Because we're all beloved children of God. Well, let me get down to the nitty-gritty, but holding those two things, chapters 1 and 3 and this idea of interconnectivity, as we speak to the specifics at which Paul is getting at. And like I said, 
Each one of these pieces holds so much for us. So we're going to see how far we get. Um, We probably will only get through the first verse, but we'll see. Outlining the beloved community, Paul speaks first and says this. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. There's There's the why of it. Why do you do this? Because you're interconnected. What's your motivation? You're interconnected. Okay, so I found it interesting as I was looking at this that we can't speak the truth unless we have put away falsehood. I think it's interesting that many of us are (laughs) um, quick to speak and slow to listen. We're quick to speak the truth and a little bit shorter on the putting away falsehood piece. And so I want us to unpack that a little bit. Um, As you've heard me say several times, I think it's a helpful distinction to talk about the false self from the true self. And Paul does this. If you look right before, he says, sort of put away the old self. You know, he talks about renewing in the spirit of your mind and clothe. You put on these new clothes. And, you know, the early Christians at baptism did that. They put on these brand new, they, they, it was sort of a dramatic, sort of you peel off the old robe and you put on the new. And say, I'm a new creation. And so that's what he's getting at here. Another word for putting away is stripping off the falsehood. And this is what I would say. All of us have a false self. We all do. We all puff up, act out of our ego when we feel scared. When we feel little, we do things that aren't so nice to one another to feel better about ourselves. When we do that, we're acting out of our false self. Not the true, beloved image of God. Another description of the false self is when we, in our fear, tear down someone else. That's really common. As one said at Free For All, when you don't feel good about yourself, you tend to tear down the other person. This is acting out of a false self. And how charitable would it be, and not in a condescending way, but if we could see people's actions saying, you know, they're, they're acting out of their false self. I love that. You know, that holds the image of God in them without tearing them down. The other thing, I think, when we act out of our false self, we act out of our sense of scarcity. We either feel like resources are scarce, and by resources, I mean anything from your resource of power. So if you have a feeling of powerlessness, your feeling of fear, uh, maybe there's a scarcity of money, which is a real sense of Also powerlessness. A scarcity of love. That's a huge one. Your love tank is so empty. And there's this fear that you're not lovable. And many times when there's this feeling of scarcity, whether real or imagined, we tend to act out. We tend to harm other. To gain a sense of power a sense of hope, a sense that there is enough. 
And this happens all the time. And it's acting out of the false self. When there's a sense of scarcity and we act out, we're acting out of that false self. And finally, I think out of the false self, I think it's just important that we name the lies, the falsehoods that we believe about ourselves and others. There's just certain falsehoods we believe. And I don't know what your, everybody's falsehood is different. So I can't name yours, but here's some common ones. (laughs) I'm not lovable. God won't love me unless I do the to-do list or do whatever. So-and-so is not lovable (laughs) unless they do X, Y, or Z. That's a common one. And that's a lie. Because Paul says at the end of this that we are beloved children. Or the lie might be, If I don't have such and such, if I don't possess a certain knowledge, belief, power, money, there's an innate connection with a sense of death. I will die on some existential level if I don't have power, if I don't have the money, if I don't have the success, if I don't have the family ideal, then I will die. And those are the lies. And and Paul tries to break down in this beloved community. Those are the lies you've exchanged. Truth for a lie. I think that's what he means. And there's blind spots. There's blind spots for all of us. And this is why we need community. (laughs) Because we got lots of blind spots. Falsehoods that we don't see. And so now, after we've put a Put away the falsehood. Now we can speak truth to our neighbor. Some of you are like, then we'd never speak. (laughs) Which may not be a bad thing. I don't know. Um, So we speak truth to our neighbor. What does that mean? For we are members of the body. You can't can't parse those two out in Paul's language here. The for is your beloved conjunction. (laughs) It's this, as one commentary says, not speaking truth to each other is tantamount to not speaking truth to ourselves and vice versa. Not speaking truth to each other is tantamount to not speaking truth to ourselves. This is interconnectedness at its best, is recognizing the way that we are knit together and how one thing affects the other. One person at Free For All said, it's amazing what we can talk ourselves into when no one else is around. (laughs) Right? And then Glenda said, when I'm alone, I'm always right. (laughs) (laughs) We had a belly laugh. And it's so true. You know, without community, we don't see those blind spots. We're always right. But we need each other to speak truth to one another. And speaking truth to ourselves and naming those things. It's kind of like this body image, again, this organic, as Dick said, this great organic language of the body. You know, if the brain only sent a message to the heart and not the lungs, (laughs) we'd be in for it. Right? There's the interconnectedness at play. The whole body has to function together. The brain has to send the message to everyone for truth to be revealed. 
So we had some good conversation about speaking truth at Free For All and what that means. And by the way, Free For All is just this place on Tuesday we get together and we talk about the upcoming scripture. Um, Kathleen also had this to say about speaking truth. As it, I could tell she was um, seeing this as, again, the, the lens in which we need to see this passage. She said this, We try to fool each other and we try to fool God. We fool ourselves into believing these crazy things. If we could listen to the truths in one another, we could see the connections rather than the divisions. We would see how much truth we hold in common. I love that. It speaks to how many times we put on pretension or airs to fool one another. To believe even the craziest things, even about ourselves. Instead of the way of life, as Paul describes it, if we would speak truth to one another and listen to each other's truth, we would recognize the connectivity how we all bear the image of Christ. All right, so what does that mean? That's, that's great. Isn't that great? We want to just say amen. Yeah, I love that on some level. But what does that mean for our, da- for our daily life? I mean, how do you apply that? Um, first of all, speaking truth, speaking our truth. Let's, let's talk about that, what that looks like. Um, and then maybe some examples. Okay. Speaking our truth doesn't mean we can just say whatever we want. It clearly has to go in line with what Paul's already lined out as our core values. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in Christ's love, making every effort, maintaining uh, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So in that frame, we can speak the truth. Isn't that interesting? That in that frame of mind, in the beloved community, which holds us together, we can speak our truth. We can't, as he says, as he leads into the next verse, we can't do it in a way, in our anger, that leads to sin. Yes, it's okay to have conflict. Yes, it's okay to anger. But he clearly says, do not sin. Don't hurt someone else or wound someone else. Because remember, we're all members of the body. And when you wound that other person, you're wounding yourself. See, this is where I think our lack of imagination of the human family would really help. So, and then he says, and let me tell you, this needs no exegesis, which is a big fancy word for explanation biblically. Let no evil talk come out of your mouth. Anyone want to guess what that means? I'm being facetious. But only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. Oh my gosh. What if we all in the beloved community said and ascribed to that principle? Every day we fail 
Okay, so again, this is it's not where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so guilty. That's not what we're doing here. But every day in the beloved community, we trespass this. We, we let words come out of our mouth that don't build up. And there's certainly not grace to those who hear. And words are things. We say this in our house to Sophie because she changes her mind all the time. We say, words matter. Words have generative power. They create, as we see God do in Genesis 1. Words matter. He says they have the very power to build up or tear down. So when we speak truth, he says, yes, you speak your truth, but they can't be evil words that tear down, but words that build up and give grace to those who hear. And finally, I'm inserting my own because you've heard me say this since I started this whole theme in Ephesians, which is, I believe speaking truth has to happen in Kairos time. There is a certain time in the fullness of time that God calls us to speak our truth. And sometimes we miss that opportunity, and sometimes we speak truth when it's not the right time, and it falls on what? Deaf ears. So timing is very important, and that's discerned in the body by the Holy Spirit. All right, so I want to give you some examples of speaking our truth. Got to start with Cuba. I love it. In the Cuban church, you got to go. Just saying. Your bra straps can show. Your underwear can hang out. You come in your nightgown, and the guy behind me was drunk. (laughs) Can I get a witness? (laughs) They're speaking their truth and hearing truth, and they're not doing it for a show. There's no show, and there's no pretense. They're like, we're coming, and we're hearing truth, and we're speaking truth. And what we look like, even our actions, those moral compass things, they're kind of, we'll get to that. We're here to hear truth and speak truth. And it's beautiful and inspiring. And we'll keep talking about it until you get so jealous you want to go. All right, secondly, we had one of our prayer and discernment times. I think it was the last one, actually, on the Wednesday night at 7 at Providence House. And the question was, and we prayed for about 15, 20 minutes, just prayer around this question. What is God's spirit in our time calling the church to be? So we sat and prayed that question for 20 minutes. And then we had a time to share sort of what bubbled up, what emerged. And one person said in one word, or few words, to be honest. When this person was asked to explain that a little bit further, they said, I was with, had a dinner with friends who had been church their whole lives, and she didn't even know what it meant to say that the Spirit was alive and working through. After all those years, was it allowed in their church? I don't know. Do we play the game of church and not tell each other? You know, I don't know what that spirit stuff is either. Is there space for that? 
Can we be honest with one another? People. If there's nowhere else for people to find truth, they will find it in art. They will find it in the movies. They will find it at Starbucks. They will find it in literature. They will find it in places of sportsmanship on the field. Truth will happen. And the 20s know it and they sniff it out. And where there is truth, there they will be. And so I think the church better get to some truth telling. So here's our challenge. What we hide is not healed. What we hide is not healed. Think about a wound, all you physicians. I'm probably way out of the league, and you tell me which wounds don't function this way. But for the most part, right, a wound healing is proportional to the openness. Is that sort of true? <laughs> it's true in the spiritual life. If you hide it, it will not heal. It will fester. Pus forms, and it's gross. And that's what we get in a lot of churches is pussy. Sorry, it's very descriptive, but (laughs) that's what we get. And it begins to grow and become septic in the church. So we have to do the hard call of sharing our stories sharing our truth, speaking our truth, trusting in the Spirit. What better place, I think, that Paul's laid out to practice truth-telling than the church, which is supposed to be beloved and held by forgiveness and love and openness and all these values. This is the place it's supposed to be. We shouldn't expect that from the political landscape, the social landscape, any other landscape but the church. This is the irony. We should laugh. It's so sad it's funny. All right, so my own story. You know, you can't preach about speaking truth without sharing your own truth. And so, you know, I've been here six years, don't you know? In the fullness of time... I need to tell you something. Don't worry. You're not going to vote me out at the business meeting. I don't think. I And I've, I've shared a little bit of this struggle, and I'll tell you why afterwards, why this is important. Is that my own story and path in my, really from junior high on, but was there was a lot of anxiety. Okay, I struggled with general anxiety about everything. And, you know, the church is really good at lowering that knot. Um, Well, it festered, got worse, as I entered college. And, um, and of course, I always seem to choose that which is most painful for me, which is I was an English major. So as an English major, I had to write a lot of papers. And then I went to seminary and had to write a lot of papers. Okay, so 
here's the part. This is the truth telling. Is that I hate writing sermons. Okay, there it is. <laughs> okay, let me let me explain that. I don't hate delivering them. I don't hate the ideas, crafting, reading, commentaries, free-for-all. Love it. Outlines. But there's some form in my brain that if I have to write, my anxiety level goes... And so my confession to you, and again, only in the fullness of time, were we ready for this? But it was May... 2003, I was writing a research paper, and this is a true story. You know, this was back in the day when you used note cards for your research paper, and you're like, source five and source ten, and they were like all spread out on my bed, and I was trying to synthesize all these note cards, and um, it was a god thing. I guess one of my friends came over, and I had this horrible panic attack trying to get all these note cards together and write this out and it was um got to the point of being very fearful to my friend I just I couldn't see and it's hard to explain it was it's brain chemistry thing but I couldn't go on I didn't want to go on and so I spent the weekend at the wonderful Waco psychiatric hospital it was three days of transformation in which, beginning transformation, it wasn't magical, in which I faced this writing anxiety. This is strange. I've never met anybody with this. I'm sure they're out there. But when I have to write, every piece of me feels, this is the weird part, that I'm shutting down. I don't know why. And, um, you know, you try different things, medication and therapy and all that. And it was um, the beginning of healing for me. But that was, talk about a dark night of the soul being in seminary <laughs> and being in that place and thinking, God, there is no place that you can call me. And see, the search committee just said, do your background <laughs> check good enough. Um, I just, but it's, it's just this miracle. And why that I'm motivated to be in this place, in this pulpit, when I face this every week, is because I believe in the first three chapters of Ephesians. That my truth, to speak to my truth is one, to share that this is hard for me. I've told you that. I told you that. I have fear of public speaking. It really goes with the, the writing anxiety. And um, I speak that because we got a name. I've been, I feel like I've been hiding that. And... Um, I just am so amazed that God can take our brokenness, our anxiety, our depression, our fear, 
our sense of powerlessness, our terminal illnesses, whatever we're challenged with, and if we would speak our truth and be honest, the family has the opportunity to heal. And I'm saying all of that not for shock value, and my homiletics professors, uh, preaching professors, would say if you reveal too much of yourself in a sermon, that's bad, because then it's not about Jesus. So if you leave this and you talk about me and my fragility, I will feel that I have failed. Because this is about Jesus. And this is why. We're all broken. We all have a story that needs to be shared. We all have things we don't want others to know. And I'm not talking about, when we get to this reflect and respond, I'm not ta- I'm, that's not an invitation for you to share your deepest, darkest secrets. I'm not encouraging what could be emotional outpouring that's not helpful. Only you know in the fullness of time, in Kairos time, and in safe space, what you can share. But there comes a time when we, as the church, need to tell the truth and tell our truth to one another. It's time to uphold that we don't have the perfect image. You don't have a perfect pastor. I hate to tell you. Michelle's not perfect either, right? No. <laughs> uh, and we're not. We're just not. We're rough around the edges. We've been in weird places. We've done bad things. We've had bad thoughts. We've spoken bad words. But we are a holy and beloved and called people of God because what Jesus has done for us. That's it. And we have to bear to that truth to ourselves and to the world. What holds us together, this body imagery, back to the organic body, is that the center of it pulsing life into us, as it says here, is the Holy Spirit. Our goodness and our belovedness comes only in all because of what Christ has done. Listen to verse 32 and following. God in Christ has forgiven you. Amen? Okay, we got that one out. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is our hope. As Paul says, we can't boast about ourselves, our righteousness, Something to be askanced, to look away from. But we can boast in what Christ has done for us. What we are called to do is share our truth, 
to be honest, to bear our burdens with one another. That's what the beloved community does. We share our joys and we bear our burdens. As Michelle said last week, that's how we grow up. Because there's not a lot of people doing that out there. There's a lot of childish and uncivil behavior. Because we have not decided to grow up. And the beloved community, Paul says, you got to grow up. To become mature. The only way you can be mature is to grow in your true self, not your false self. And think about it. It would look really funny, a body connected all by false selves, false parts, mechanical valves that were misshapen. But if we are our true self in true form, what a beautiful body that is. And so, Providence, I want to ask you as we conclude, will you risk trusting and being your true self to one another? Will you say, if I'm going to heal, i got to stop hiding? And I'm going to trust that the value of love embodied by the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ is in this place. And I can trust these people 